Sense, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It's October the 2nd, and I've got a great show for you this week. In fact, this entire month is packed full of kick ass content. So I hope you're going to be sticking around for the entirety here. First, before we get into the show, I want to talk about my Greater Magic episode that's coming up. And, for this episode, we're going to have a Greater Magic Question Contest. That's right. And what are you going to get for this? You're going to get a signed copy of Gyps Fulvis' new release of his album, Nocturnes for Nightmares, as an award. And I'm not just talking about a digital download. I'm talking about a physical, hardcore, actual CD. Who knows how much longer they're actually going to be out there as we move into the digital revolution. But it's also signed. So... You're getting a physical, signed, free of charge, gratis CD for sending me your Greater Magic questions for this very special Halloween week episode of Nine Cents. Now, how can you get this? Well, you can email me at info at ninecentspodcast.com with your questions, which some of you already have, and thank you so much for doing that. Uh, And those of you listening who haven't yet, come on. I know you're curious. There's got to be something you want to know. I'll wait. However, you can also go to the Facebook page. On the forum there, under discussions, just put a question there. Or you can message me at any one of the very, very many social networking sites that I and Nine Cents am a part of. Can you hear that airplane? That is the loudest airplane going over my head, as if it's like going to run into me trying to record my podcast, and they dare fly over. TSA, you sons of bitches! They're out there, and they can hear me. Those bastards. Well, anyway, you can actually call in your questions to my Google Voice account, 801-899-6168. But I'll tell you what, if you're going to call in, another way you can enter this Greater Magic Question Contest is without even sending me a greater magic question. You can call in and leave me a bumper for the top of the show. That's right. Every single episode, I have a brand new person saying the same Rocky Horror Picture Show line I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Leave me yours at 801-899-6168, and I'll enter you into the contest. So how am I going to choose the winners? Absolutely randomly. I'm going to choose at the end of the Greater Magic episode, and I'm going to send you those albums myself. This is sort of a little reward for listening, because I really appreciate it, and I know the people on my show really appreciate it. So, what else did I do this week? Today was the first day in, I think, over a month that I homebrewed, and it was amazing. I had such a great time. I was actually planning on having a 
a fellow citizen come over to the house. Uh, we were going to homebrew, and I was going to talk to him about one of the projects he has in the works. We're going to have to kick that off until next week uh, because he came down with a cold. However, that's not going to stop me from delivering a kick-ass show because as I had planned for months, today I'm bringing you Marilyn Mansfield. That's right, the one and only. I've got a really great interview with her that I'm going to be bringing to you in the Creature Feature segment. In Devil's Advocate, we're going to be talking about prayer is prevarication, and ritual is reality. In the Infernal Informant, whatever happened to the American left, and how my shirt flummoxed the TSA. And I am going to be bringing you a bizarre bizarre no matter what. <laughs> and as always, they're going to be a little strange. They're going to be bizarre, go figure. Hornier when you're sick. We'll talk about it in depth probably more than you'll want me to, <laughs> but it's going to happen anyway. So how about I stop BSing and we dive right in to the devil's advocate right now. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone, I'll raise up my voice that you may hear to the east and to the west I beckon, to the north and to the south. I show a sign proclaiming a death to the weakling, wealth to the strong. Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the Devil's Advocates. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Prayer is prevarication. Ritual is reality. It seems that on some level, uh, some people like to equate effectiveness of prayer with the effectiveness of ritual. And I think that's a flawed comparison to make. And really, the segment of Devil's Advocate is centered around that. So let's sort of look at the uh, the basics of what prayer is um, and and ritual in turn. The, the type of person that prays is the type of person that grants authority over their own actions and over their reality to something else, to someone that they hope is there that really isn't. Is them literally taking control out of their hands giving up and begging something, essentially the atmosphere, for something to happen, some certain outcome. And you hear people talk about, oh, the power of prayer, or I got better because I prayed over it, or my grandfather was dying in the hospital, we all prayed about it, and he got better for at least a couple more days, and then he died. The power of prayer is bullshit. <laughs> What prayer can do is a very lesser magic reaction. So what you can get out of it is, <laughs> aside from a little bit of shame, I would imagine, because really, who wants to put themselves on their knees and beg for something? But what the type of person who does it gets out of it is a, a sense of uh, uh, a 
sense of satisfaction, a personal sense of, okay, well, I have done what I need to do. Now the greater scheme of the universe is going to enact. We are not that type of people. Um, We are the virtual opposite. And that's because rather than giving in to some greater cosmic entity, we're taking control and keeping it in our own hands. And this is the defining difference between prayer and ritual. And this is why ritual is effective and prayer is not. With prayer, as stated already, you're putting your hopes into something else. With ritual, you're grabbing on the reins of that desire, whatever it is, whatever the outcome is, and you are driving that desire. You are quite literally taking control of your life. You are taking control of your reality and the reality of those around you. And in the case of uh, love, those around you, and in the case of destruction, those completely separate from you. And you are causing events that would not normally occur otherwise through your ritual. This is all detailed in the Satanic Bible. But it is something that you can't just read and jump right into. I mean, you have to understand it. You have to be able to comprehend what it's saying. There is that fundamental difference in the perception of prayer versus ritual. Certainly in the execution of prayer versus ritual. But it's the understanding that, and I think this is perhaps, you know, it's, it's your direction is what drives the ritual to be effective versus just something that happens to end up occurring naturally or not. Okay, so direction. If you're praying, you're literally putting all of your energy out there and just letting it go, hoping that someone else is going to take that energy and direct it for you. With ritual, you're literally focusing your energy and pushing it toward a specific end. So rather than handing it off to nothing, you are walking it to the bank, so to speak. That's the difference. And that's why prayer is prevarication and ritual is reality. Because with ritual, you are literally making it happen. With your own strength, your own will, your own energy, however you want to see it. And with prayer, those poor saps, they're literally just pissing in the wind. Let's go ahead and move over to the Infernal Informant. What is of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the Infernal Informant. Hi, this week we are going to be talking about a New York Times Sunday Review opinion page article, What Happened to the American Left? And this is um, by Michael Kazin, published September 24th, 2011. Michael Kazin is a professor of history at Georgetown, a co-editor of Dissent, and the author of American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. Sometimes, attention should be paid to the absence of news. America's economic miseries continue, 
with unemployment still high and home sales stagnant or dropping. The gap between the wealthiest Americans and their fellow citizens is wider than it has been since the 1920s. And yet, except for the demonstrations and energetic recall campaigns that roiled Wisconsin this year, unionists and other stern critics of corporate power and government cutbacks have failed to organize a serious movement against the people and policies that bungled the United States into recession. Instead, the Tea Party Rebellion, led by veteran conservative activists and bankrolled by billionaires, have compelled politicians from both parties to slash federal spending and defeat proposals to tax the rich and hold financiers accountable for their misdeeds. Partly as a consequence, Barack Obama's tenure is starting to look less like the second coming of FDR and more like a rerun of Jimmy Carter. Although last week the president did sound a bit Rooseveltian when he proposed that millionaires should pay their fair share in taxes or are going to have to ask seniors to pay more for Medicare. How do we account for the relative silence of the left? Perhaps what really matters about a movement's strength is the years of building that came before it. In the 1930s, the growth of unions and popularity of demand to share the wealth and establish industrial democracy were not simply responses to the economic debacle. In fact, unions bloomed only in the middle of the decade, where a modest recovery was underway. The liberal triumph of the 1930s was in fact rooted in decades of eloquent oratory and patient organizing by a variety of reformers and radicals against the evils of monopoly and big money. Similarly, the current populist right originated amongst the articulate spokesmen and well-funded institutions that emerged in the 1970s, long before the current crisis began. The two movements would have disagreed about nearly everything, but each had aggressive proponents who, backed up by powerful social forces, established their views as the conventional wisdom of an era. The seeds of the 1930s left were planted back in the Gilded Age by figures like the journalist Henry George. In 1886, George, the author of a best-selling book that condemned land speculation, ran for mayor of New York City as the nominee of the new Union Labor Party. He attracted a huge following with speeches indicting the office holders of the Tammany Hall machine for engorging themselves on bribes and special privileges, while we have hordes of citizens living in want and in vice born of want, existing under conditions that would appall a heathen. George also brought his audiences a message of hope. We are building a movement for the abolition of industrial slavery, and what we do on this side of the water will send its impulse across the land and over the sea, and give courage to all men to think and act. Running against candidates from both major parties and the opposition of nearly every local employer and church, George would probably have been elected if the 28-year-old Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican who finished third, had not split the anti-Tammany vote. Despite George's defeat, the pro-labor, anti-corporate movement that coalesced around him and others kept growing. As the turn of the century neared, Wage earners mounted huge strikes for union recognition on the nation's railroads 
and inside its coal mines and textile mills. In the 1890s, a mostly rural insurgencies spawned the People's Party, also known as the Populists, which quickly won control of several states and elected 22 congressmen. The party soon expired, but not before the Democrats, under William Jennings Bryan, had adopted important parts of its platform, the progressive income tax, a flexible currency, and support for labor organization. During the early 20th century, a broader progression coalition, including immigrant workers, middle-class urban reformers, muckracking journalists, I don't even think I said that right, and social gospelers, <laughs> I said that one right, established a new common sense about the need for a government that would rein in corporate power and establish a limited welfare state. The unbridled free market and the ethic of individualism, they argued, had left too many Americans at the mercy of what Theodore Roosevelt called malefactors of great wealth. As Jane Addams put it, the good we secure for ourselves is precarious and uncertain, is floating in midair, until it is secured for all of us and incorporated into our common life. Amid the boom years of the 1920s, conservatives rebutted this wisdom and won control of the federal government. The chief business of the American people is business, intoned President Calvin Coolidge. But the triumph was brief, both ideologically and electorally. While Franklin D. Roosevelt swept into the White House in 1932, most Americans were already primed to accept the economic and moral argument progressives had been making since the heyday of Henry George. Will Rogers, the popular humorist and loyal Democrat, put it in comfortably agrarian terms. All the feed is going into one manager, and the stock on the other side of the stall, ain't getting a thing. We got it, but we don't know how to split it up. The unionists of the Congress of Industrial Organizations echoed his argument, as did soak the rich demagogues like Huey Long and Father Charles Coughlin. The architects of Social Security, the minimum wage, and other landmark New Deal policies did so as well. After years of preparation, welfare state liberalism had finally become a mainstream faith. In 1939, John L. Lewis and the pugnacious labor leader declared the millions of organized workers banded together in the CIO are the main driving force of the progressive movement of workers, farmers, professional, and small business people, and of all other liberal elements in the community. With such forces on his side, the politically adept FDR became a great president. But the meaning of liberalism gradually changed. The quarter century of growth and low unemployment that followed World War II understandably muted appeals for class justice on the left. Liberals focused on rights for minority groups and women more than addressing continued inequalities of wealth. Meanwhile, conservatives began to build their own movement based on the loathing of creeping socialism and a growing perception that the federal government was oblivious or hostile to the, in to the interests and values of middle-class whites. In the late 1970s, the grassroots right were personified by a feisty cigar-chomping businessman activist named Howard Jarvis, having toiled for conservative causes since Herbert Hoover's campaign in 1932, Jarvis had run for office on several occasions in the past, but, like Henry George, he had never been elected. Blocked at the ballot box, he became an anti-tax organizer, working on the behalf of the best way to fight big government was not to give them money in the first place. 
1978, he spearheaded the Proposition 13 campaign in California to roll back property taxes and make it exceedingly hard to raise them again that fall. Proposition 13 won almost two-thirds of the vote, and conservatives have been vigorously echoing its anti-tax argument ever since. Just as the left was once able to pin the nation's troubles on heartless big businessmen, the right honed a straightforward critique of a big government that took Americans' money and gave them little or nothing useful in return. One reason for the growth of the right was that most of those in charge of the government from the mid-1960s through the 2000s, whether Democrats or Republicans, failed to carry out the biggest promises. Lyndon Johnson failed to defeat the Viet Cong or abolish poverty. Jimmy Carter was unable to tame inflation or free the hostages in Iran. George W. Bush neither accomplished his mission in Iraq nor controlled the deficit. Like the left in the early 20th century, conservatives built an impressive set of institutions to develop and disseminate their ideas. Their think tanks, legal societies, lobbyists, talk radio, and best-selling manifestos have trained, educated, and financed two generations of writers and organizers. Conservative Christian colleges, both Protestant and Catholic, provide students with a more coherent worldview than do the most prestigious schools led by liberals. More recently, conservatives marshaled media outlets like Fox News and the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal to their cause. The Tea Party is thus just the latest version of a movement that has been evolving for over half a century, longer than any comparable effort on the liberal or radical left. Conservatives have rarely celebrated a landslide win on the scale of Proposition 13, but their argument about the evils of big government has, by and large, carried the day. President Obama's inability to solve the nation's economic woes has only reinforced the right's ideological advantage. If activists on the left want to alter this reality, they will have to figure out how to redefine the old ideal of economic justice for the age of the Internet and relentless geographic mobility. During the last election, many hoped that the organizing around Barack Obama's presidential campaign would do just that. Yet, since taking office, Mr. Obama has only rarely made an effort to move the public conversation in that direction. Instead, the left must realize that when progressives achieve success in the past, whether organizing unions or fighting for equal rights, they seldom bet their futures on politicians. They fashion their own institutions, unions, women groups, community and immigrant centers, and a witty anti-authoritarian press, in which they spoke up for themselves and for the interests of wage-earning Americans. Today, such institutions are either absent or reeling. With unions embattled and on the decline, Working people of all races lack a sturdy vehicle to articulate and fight for the vision of a more egalitarian society. Liberal universities, websites, and non-governmental organizations cater mostly to a professional middle class and are more skillful at promoting social causes like legalizing same-sex marriage and protecting the environment than demanding millions of new jobs that pay a living wage. A reconnection with ordinary Americans is vital, not just to defeating conservatives in 2012 and in elections to come. Without it, the left will remain unable to state clearly and passionately what a better country would look like and what it will take to get there. To paraphrase the labor martyr Joe Hill, the left should stop mourning its recent past and start organizing to change the future. I guess my problem with this entire thing, and really all politics in general, is that we look at politics in political terms, rather than terms of reality. So what we do 
is enact policy, and, and this is what we have done, to allow corporations to be considered American citizens, but then we don't tax them or we don't put restrictions on them like we do American citizens. So, in reality, corporations are American citizens plus. They don't have to pay the same taxes. They can ship workers overseas. They can have banks offshore and not have to pay taxes on that income. They have so many loopholes. You know, whenever we're talking about taxing the rich, everyone's usually thinking about income tax, but they're not ever taking into account payroll tax. We need to genuinely look at a flat tax rate because though the progressive tax rate we have in its ideology is fair in its application it's not so a flat tax is the only rational solution and we really cannot say that corporations are people and certainly not americans when they're shipping jobs overseas and refusing to bring their money to the country that's not american we need to either decide as a people that, that A, corporatism is the way to go, so we're no longer going to focus on country-centric ideology. We're no longer going to look at pride in your country or doing it for the American people. Certainly, corporations haven't been doing that for at least 50 years. So why should American people be doing that? The unfortunate part of all of this is that the average American is ignorant willfully ignorant. It takes too long to read a short article when they could be watching TV. I don't understand how we can complain but do nothing about it. I don't think we should look at it as liberals versus conservatives or Democrats versus Republicans. How we should look at it is either Americans versus corporations or world citizens versus corporations. Because the bottom line is you don't have control if you don't have money or influence. And influence comes with money. And you don't have money unless you are a corporation. I mean, that's the reality of it. You know, we can complain and bitch and moan about small-time policies like same-sex marriage or the right to abortion. But all of that is just really bullshit. We need to focus on the reality here, people. If we want to have a society in the terms that the American populace has been talking about, or we want to have a society that the American fringe is talking about, we just need to come to a conclusion and stop complaining about it. That's not going to stop me from complaining about it. <laughs> I'm still going to bring the articles, just so you know. But you know, in the scheme of things. I mean, we like to complain about things and then do nothing about it. Or complain about things while ignoring the elephant in the room. The elephant's the problem. And the elephant? It's not a political party. It's corporations. That's my opinion. In the next article, this is the Washington Post Lifestyle How My Shirt Flummoxed the TSA by Marilyn W. Thompson, published September 23rd. On the same July day that Donald Rumsfeld was patted down by airport security at Chicago O'Hare's airport, I underwent an upper body pat down at Reagan National. I was posing spread eagle in front of the full body scanner in compliance with various mandates of the Federal Transportation Security Administration while something set off 
a female TSA agent, who began mumbling anxiously into her walkie-talkie. I leaned forward, trying to hear her description of my offense. I was wearing no shoes and no heavy jewelry, and I'd thrown my belt into a bin along with my Blackberry, my bulging key ring, and an Amazon Kindle. But something was clearly wrong. Finally, I heard her whisper, Shiny shirt, shiny shirt. I was indeed wearing a very shiny shirt. It was a silver Banana Republic sweater accented with shiny speckles. The agent signaled for me to exit the scanner and pulled me over for further inspection. The high-tech scanner brought bought by TSA at a cost of roughly $150,000 can detect hidden explosives, guns or knives tucked into underwear or ammunition packed into body orifices. But it cannot, the agent told me, see clearly through a shiny shirt. My upper body pat-down was not overly intrusive, and I escaped without suffering the public humiliation of the cancer-stricken 95-year-old who made headlines when she was forced to remove her adult diaper at a northwest Florida regional airport. But as taxpayer and an occasional long-distance traveler, I departed Reagan wondering how many billions of dollars have gone into producing sophisticated, high-tech airport security systems that can be flummoxed by a passenger wearing a shiny shirt. How do we know that the Al-Qaeda operatives haven't discovered this chink in the TSA's armor? Worse yet, why does the TSA never have to divulge proof that all their random searches roaming gloved hands and intrusive questions are really protecting America. Where's the evidence? Ten years after the 9-11 hijackers passed through major airports without raising questions, have we reached the point where we as a society can freely debate whether this system is working and whether all the annoying TSA regulations are actually worth keeping? Let's talk hair products. TSA's regulations stipulate that a passenger's liquid gels and foams must be limited in size to three ounces. I get that. But many specialty hair products made by major manufacturers simply do not come in three-ounce sizes. Other hair products come in unusually trendy packaging, sometimes with shiny labels that seems to befuddle TSA agents. And so with alarming regularity, hair products are seized. They're thrown into discarded bins along with half-filled water bottles and suspicious breast milk. The more expensive the product I have observed, the higher the chances of seizure. I first noticed this phenomenon in Kansas City, an unusually strict TSA center, from my observation, when a full container of bedhead manipulator sculpting putty was removed from my bag and seized as contraband. This product had cost me just under $20 at the Alta Salon in Silver Spring, and I had barely used it. I'll admit that it had a suspicious appearance, a cobalt blue color with a thick, goopy texture, but no one was going to mistake it for a container of ammonium nitrate. I found that I had an easier time with Garnier Fructis line, usually bought for less than $3 in an item at the local CVS. I once made it through security in Greenville, South Carolina with a mostly used 5-ounce jar of styling paste. The forgiving agent warned me that while the jar violated regulations, he would make an exception since the container was nearly empty. This confounded me. Did they really think that a full 5-ounce jar of styling putty posed a more ominous threat, as if the putty itself were explosive? I've had so many hair products seized without apology or explanation that have begun to suspect a broader conspiracy. 
I imagine a rogue cabal of TSA agents with a rented warehouse somewhere near Miami to which they ship all manner of seized high-end hair products for recycling on the black market. Where else could all this stuff be going? I simply refuse to believe that a budget-conscious TSA would leave a full container of bedhead manipulator in the garbage bin. But of course we say nothing, we do nothing. We watch them open our bags and take what they want. We disrobe on command, we stand in full-body scanner and wonder whether someone behind the wall is chuckling at our imperfections. And we make adjustments, anything to speed us through the process. We wear loafers and elasticized pants. We repackage our precious products, packing pricey styling gel into inconspicuous hefty sandwich bags. And from this day forward, When traveling by air, we leave our shiny shirts at home. (laughs) That's the end of the article. I I had a lot of fun reading this article the first time and, and really reading it this time. Because it speaks to the absurdity of what we as a society are willing to go through to fly on an airplane. TSA... Okay, I understand their their ideology here at, at its core. They want to protect its passengers from terrorists. But seriously, the only thing you're doing and the only thing you have been doing since 9-11 is piss off the population. I mean, the full body scanners, to me, that's not a big deal. I don't care. I don't fly enough that it's a huge issue but for businessmen who do have a problem with it don't fly rent a car get on a train get on a bus there are other modes of transportation i understand overnight situations where you know there's an emergency and you have to react suddenly but if you plan ahead i'm pretty sure flying is not the only answer especially in our modern world of technology if it's a problem and if it's not a problem If you really don't care, shut the fuck up. Really. This is the way I see it. These are corporations, businesses, who have a right to do whatever the hell they want to people before they get on their flight. You are literally going to a business and saying, I want to have a benefit of your business, but I don't want you to enact anything that I don't agree with. We don't do that at the grocery store. We don't do that at the, the, the beauty salon or, or at the local warehouse store that you might shop for food uh, or clothing or whatever else. You don't get to make the rules out of business that you're being a patron of. If you don't like it, start your own business. Don't enact the policies that piss you off and enact the policies that you're okay with. And maybe other people are going to come to you because they agree with you. And we'll let the free market decide that. But to sit there in an impotent rage about a shiny shirt or them taking away your hair gel. Stop bringing your hair gel! I mean, isn't that like an obvious fix? If you don't like it, and yet you're willing to pay and take the time to go through their security... You don't have the right to complain about it. If you're going to be a patron of another business, you cannot complain about the way that business conducts itself. Because you're still doing it. If you have a problem with it, stop going there. Stop and let the free market economy work itself out. I guarantee if people stop flying, 
that they would react in order to get people to fly more. Whether it's reduce TSA regulation, or whether it's reduce pricing, or whether it's find some other way to incentivize you. But it's, it's got to be aggravating for other people out there too. They're complaining while standing in line. Get out of the damn line if you don't like it. Problem solved. Nothing to complain about. You're no longer inconvenienced. Seriously. Just a bunch of people staring in the mirror, complaining, and making themselves feel better about it. So, that's it for the Infernal Informant. I'm going to take a short break, and on the other side of that break, we're going to dive right into Marilyn Mansfield's interview in the Creature Feature. See you there. Prepare for incoming message. Prepare yourself for Deep Six Radio. I am Matt, host of Deep Six Radio. And I am in Russ. Yes, we are. So if you want to be one of the six taking on the oh-so-lovely Idris and want to be featured on the show... Send your emails... And MP3s... To us at... Deep6... At RadioFreeSatan.com Include a bio... And anything you want mentioning on air... We are open to any genre... Apart from rap... Deep6 also includes a fine selection of alternative rock... As well as multiple other genres... So why not jump on the roller coaster? That is Deep6 Radio... Deep6 is available on... RadioFreeSatan.com And also iTunes... A week later, we, we look, look forward, forward to, to you joining us. End of the line. You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nichols and him are? Hey, what if we are the world? Was sung by the cast of Friends. I think it might go something like this. Hi everyone, I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos. Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook. Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Venture down into Lambert's basement and join me, Dave Ingram and Eagle, where we time travel via nostalgia to a golden age of big band swing and jazz, only available on Radio Free Satan.
Hello, my name's Dave Ingram. And I'm Donovan. And we are Metal Breakfast Radio. Inviting you to join us with a few beers each week. For a dose of metal scrutiny. Some verbal skullduggery. And a hell of a lot of rubbish. Rubbish! Find us on metalbreakfastradio.com, darksentinel.dk, and radiofreesatan.com. Breaking through the underbrush, fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She is swamp water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as her last is effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature segment. I'm being joined by the one, the only... The amazing witch Marilyn Mansfield. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about her uh, professional life and a little bit about maybe what, you know, how she got into Satanism and uh, how she's uh, developed her personality over the years. Marilyn, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. (laughs) So I wanted to have you on the show. Um, You've had an amazing, astonishing amount of coverage lately. And even before this coverage, you're one of those personalities that really stands out in the community as a whole. Uh, the persona that you've taken on is, is really bold and daring and uh, admirable, truly. I would say that you are looked up to by a lot of the um, feminine side of the community. Not only because seemingly as you, know, you, you exhibit a, a significant amount of less, lesser magic on a day-to-day basis... But you employ that professionally, and, and that is something that, you know, it, it, it's sort of, I suppose, the goal, but not everyone is capable or, let's say, as uh, talented in it as you. Can you tell me when you took on the persona of Marilyn Mansfield? You know, basically, I've, I've always kind of been like, what you see is what you get. So, you know, if you see me, you know, at a... I don't know, a, a club or at home or whatever. It's basically that that's just me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I walk around my apartment in heels and, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's wow. just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like, um, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, what do you, what do you look like with no makeup on or, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't, you know, I mean, I have pictures with, no makeup on, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, I came up with that, with the whole, I mean, I've always, you know, when I was young, I used to admire Marilyn Monroe since around, I don't know, third grade or whatever, and I dressed up like her in the fourth grade, and no one knew who I was, the kids, the teachers did, but all the kids thought I was like a grandma, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just found her, like, really, like, I don't know, captivating, like, her beauty, and the way she, I don't know, I just was really interested in her. And then, you know, I got, it led me to get into other actresses and stuff, you know, like Jane and such. And I actually came up, I, my family started calling me Marilyn around the fourth grade because they used to say I acted like a, you know, ditzy blonde, quote unquote. <laughs> so I even had, they named me a 
shirt even that said just call me Marilyn. And, like, they used to be like, oh, Marilyn, Marilyn, you know. And I actually came up with that name. I just really added the Mansfield, you know, mm-hmm. while um, working in this little gothic store in the city when I was about, I don't know, 18. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, everything has been, you know, kind of like in steps, but it's, it's, it's all been, you know, fun. I mean, I'm, everything I've done, I've been proud of, and I've had a blast, and, you know, it's it's just uh, been a, a fun ride. <laughs> do, you think, um, do you think there's ever been a time when you may have felt a little bit of a pressure to live up to some ideal when you have a name like, like Marilyn Mansfield? No. I never, I never really feel pressure. I don't let anyone influence my feelings. I never did, you know. I've always... Um, kind of, you know, went my own way and did my own thing. So I don't, I never feel pressured with anything, you know. Um, I've, I've turned down some um, some gigs and stuff, you know, um, just because I felt they, you know, they weren't suited for me or, I, you know, but um, no, I, I don't feel pressured. I feel like this is me and, you know, either like it or don't like it, I really don't care. <laughs> nice. yeah. well, because you are in... in uh in the media, in so many vast arenas. What would you say is your primary career? Well, that's, see, that's a whole, I mean, I, modeling is like my thing, you know? I've, even though I've done, you know, um, only a few mainstream, as you would consider it, you know, uh, things, I worked with many, many independent artists, and I love modeling, I love acting, I love all that stuff. Um, so that's really, you know, I would say my primary, you know, thing that I do. The doll thing with the TLC show and all showed another side of me that people kind of knew about but didn't know that I was that involved <laughs> with it, you know, because people always assume, like, you know, I, I just, like, lay around all day with feathers and, you know, all this kind of <laughs> stuff, which I do, but I just have a doll in my arms, you know, so it's kind of like there's so many... I'm very versatile in a way, like, there's many different sides to me, and it showed a new side, which is, like, very different, yeah, but, I mean, being a mom and the modeling and all that has always been, like, the basis for everything, and a Satanist, of course, I mean, I was born, you know, a Satanist, so. (laughs) What would you say is one of your favorite professional modeling experiences, if, if you could drive it down to one? Oh, that's hard. I mean, I really enjoy, um, I really enjoy the, uh, runway shows. I mean, like I said, they've been for independent designers, you know, I've never, uh, strutted down a Paris runway, but, you know, I've, uh, walked down a New York City runway during Fashion Week for an independent designer, you know, and it was the same thrill, you know. Um, I like doing music videos. And I just love photo shoots where I get to really, really show my creativity. Because a lot of my photo shoots, you know, I put a lot of, lot of ideas and creativity behind it. And, you know, um, the old Nick shoot was totally, like, a blast. And that came out just as I wanted it. The Darren video was great. Yeah. Uh, more mainstream, I did a shoot um, for Elizabeth and James. And that was 
really cool. That was like the whole bus thing. They call me when I'm ready, you know? Shared <laughs> <laughs> food and everything. That was pretty awesome. I got my hair done. You know, I usually do my own hair and makeup because I'm also a licensed cosmetologist, so... <laughs> Do you do you find because you're you're licensed that you're a little hesitant to have other people do your hair and nails and, and makeup? Oh yeah. <laughs> so are you are you constantly critiquing them when they're doing it? Is it like torture I, for them? I usually, um, I for even for that shoot, I did my own makeup. I uh-huh. usually insist that I do at least my own makeup. If you want to mess around my hair, like it's it's okay, but I usually wind up fixing it or something like that. <laughs> 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 you had mentioned your dog so, collection um, just a minute ago. How did that snowball initially? I've always loved dolls, you know. I've always been very fascinated by um, things that look like humans but aren't. I, since I was a little kid, I remember one time I went to um, Macy's when I was I was really young, and um, my grandmother she um, asked the mannequin. What floor was, I don't know, whatever she was asking for. Mm-hmm. And she didn't realize it was a mannequin. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, she got like, then she got like, like freaked out. And I was just like, whoa, I can't believe that just happened. Like, I thought it was, I thought it was so amazing that she just walked and assumed this was, you know, a human being and just started talking to it. And then when she realized it, you know, um, she felt, you know, really foolish. But I thought it was so cool. And like, I remember just wanting, like, a mannequin. (laughs) But, of course, I didn't get one. (laughs) Um, I always were into dolls, and I got one when I was around seven that it was was called Real Baby, and it was the first doll, I think Hasbro put it out, around 84 or 85, and um, it was weighted around two pounds. And I remember the first, like, time holding this doll, like, it felt kind of real and all. And I always liked babies, and I always had very, very strong maternal instincts. So I just started taking care of this dog, you know, putting diapers on it, changing it. I bring it out with me. And that's kind of been my life, you know, ever since then, except when I got older, I started carrying around Chucky. Oh, <laughs> um, you know, and then I started going to horror conventions and stuff, and I would just bring one with me. I, I actually got into the Living Dead dolls and the horror babies first, and then I got into the more natural-looking uh, reborns, as they're called. And uh, so now I started, I'm starting to make them now, so it's really fun. Yeah. I've been researching the art for, the art of making a a lifelike baby doll for, I would say about a year and a half now. I don't like to jump into anything, you know? Yeah. So I really researched, I mean, I, I, you know, I started learning about color theory and paints and studying pictures of babies, where the veins would be and all this sort of thing. And, um, Yeah, I'm starting to, uh, I just started about a couple weeks ago, so I'm just building up supplies and, you know. <laughs> Amazing. I cannot wait to see what you come up with. I made a, I made a scary one for, um, actually my mother-in-law. Oh, really? <laughs> I can show you. I'll make it. It's kind of funny. <laughs> so how was it? Because you had mentioned your mother, if I can ask this, uh, how was it? You said you always had strong maternal instincts, so... Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm, I'm a father, so I understand what it's like having your first children. Um, but because you were so, I don't know, enamored with uh, dolls and babies your whole life, was it was it a hard thing for you to deal with at initially being a mother, or, or do you find that it came a little maybe a little more naturally to you because you were so, I don't know, engrossed in that in that sort of thing? Um, actually, um, it was 
motherhood has always been a very, very natural thing to me. I mean, I had my first child very young. And, um, you know, I just knew what to do. Like, I, I just always had that really strong maternal instinct, you know. And um, I just always, you know, I didn't have to be taught how to be a mom. It just always came natural to me. And I just always, you know, knew what to do. And, I mean, I love, you know, I love kids and I love having kids. And I think they're great. You know, my life wouldn't be the same without them. And I'm very fortunate that I have amazing kids, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what are some of the other projects that keep you busy outside of your doll collection, your children, which are obviously a big part of that, um, and now you're learning to uh, actually do your own dolls and modeling and everything? Yeah, uh, well, Old Nick, you know, I promote Old Nick a lot. Um, I've been doing that for a few years now, and um, I met... Uh, Magister Bob Johnson by um, writing him and asking him if he would consider me for, you know, modeling for the magazine. Um, and that's how I got to know him. And from there, I, you know, I really, I always, I always loved Old Nick. I always had like, you know, I think it's a great magazine. I think it's one of a kind. And, you know, I think the whole thing is just excellent. So, <laughs> you know, I just got really, really involved with it. And, you know, so did my husband, and now we're like, you know, we promoted, and um, he's the senior editor now, and it's just really fun. So we do that a lot in, like, clubs in the city and stuff. I went out to Hollywood and um, promoted at um, Hell Night in Hollywood, so that was fun. Right. You know, I, I'm busy with that, you know, and um, just, you know, various shoots and people wanting me to model their stuff, whatever. I'm always willing to do it. <laughs> nice. Do you think, um, and this is sort of bouncing uh, back to an earlier part of the conversation here, I'm always mildly disgusted by the modern interpretation of beauty, uh, especially when you're talking runway models and stuff like that. It seems like anorexia is encouraged. Uh, there's just sort of this almost dead look to the girls. Do you think that that, I don't know, establishment makes it difficult for uh, a real woman in order to or makes it difficult for a real woman to find work in the industry? I think it's, more, I think it's becoming more acceptable now, but I think it is still, you know, I think it is an issue. I mean, you know, I wasn't always, uh, whatever you want to call it, plus size, whatever, you know, I wasn't always. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's, it's like, even if, you know, if they use a plus size model, quote-unquote, she would usually be tall and maybe a size six, which to me is quite average, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, I mean, I remember one time I saw, I was watching some show, I don't remember, it just Grey went on the television for a second, it was like one of those inside edition shows or whatever, and there was this model called um, Velvet, and she was 300 pounds, she is 300 pounds, around, that's what it says on her bio, but, um, she modeled for one of the, uh, the Paris uh, runway shows in, like, lingerie. Wow. And I remember just, like, going to various sites to see people's comments, and it was like, you know, people, you know, they were just like, it, it was a lot of neg- negative comments. I thought it was great. I mean, you know, there's, I think that, I never thought that one type of, of woman is better looking than another. I think it goes by individual basis, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, it's it, it's more than just looks. It's the whole package, you know? So yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, and I just saw this woman, like, she was what people would consider big. She had on next to nothing, you know, and she was walking with her head up high and everything. And I think that if you're confident, that that's going to show more than, you know, your, your uh, size. If you walk around with your head down and, you know, People are gonna, people are gonna, you know, judge you and attack you, you know? I really don't care, though, what people think. That's the thing, you know? And a lot of women write me and say, oh, you know, you're so confident. I wish I could be like you and all this. And I'm just like, you know, if you're either like that or you're not, you know? Like, I mean, you can be like that, but you have to not care what people think. Because, I mean, not everyone is gonna love me, and I don't care. I don't want them to. You know, but it's like, I'm just myself. Yeah. So, I mean, do I think that, that anorexic look is nice, personally? I particularly don't care for it. I think a woman should have curves, you know, yeah. but that's my opinion. Whatever floats your boat, though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And a lot of players use women that are very, very thin because they want you to look at the outfit and not the woman. Really? I remember a lot of times... Um, I've, I've, um, you know, worn something from a designer and people will comment on my hair, my lipstick or whatever, and totally dismiss that the whole point of the photo is the outfit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> or, oh, I love your boobs, you know, or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> I'm modeling this outfit here. Like the whole caption says the outfit and, you know, it happens a lot, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's why that that is. But I, I mean, I, you know, I think that using different kind of women would be ideal. But you know, I never thought of it like that. Um, yeah, being focused on the girl versus being focused on on the outfit. I don't think a lot of people have thought of it like that actually. So that's that's fascinating. Yeah, like, can you picture me doing a Swiffer commercial? Like, it would no one. Would, I mean, you know, just because, I don't know, they just want you to focus on the, the, what they're selling, yeah. not what, that's why they usually all do, I think, I mean, it's just my opinion, again, why they do all the girls with similar makeup and hair and, you know, just so they, they're like, I mean, hangers, I guess? Yeah, I, I could, <laughs> I could actually see that, and it actually, I, I think, in part, maybe, speaks to, um, what you were talking about before at the very, very beginning of the conversation about mannequins. So, it's, yeah. you know, it, it would be a little more challenging yeah. to create some automaton to, to walk down the runway. But if you had someone that naturally looked like a mannequin that was just sort of blase, oatmeal, run-of-the-mill, nothing, mm -hmm. well, then, you know, maybe that that would be what you would want in order to focus rather than a, a personality. <laughs> so, right. That's cool. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the Church of Satan with you. Yeah. When did you first learn about the Church of Satan? Excuse me. I read the Satanic Bible when I was 12. You know, I knew then that this is who I was. I was a Satanist. I knew it from that point on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically, um, that's how I, <laughs> that's how I was um, introduced to it by the Satanic Bible. I mean, I was really young, you know. But I was always, like, mature for my age. So I had older friends and stuff. So, you know, um, no one was into what I was into. But... <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> That's always how it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did it come as a shock to... I mean, I guess, did you out yourself to your family about it? Yeah, I did. Were they um, My mother... 
it's really funny. I know it's tough. You don't have to say, you don't have to, we don't have to talk about it. No, um, it's just funny because I believe she actually bought me the Bible, <laughs> if oh, I remember wow. correctly. But um, I had expressed to her that I had wanted to join, and she had asked me to wait till I was an adult, which I did. You know, and then um, I guess she thought it would be a phase, you know, like most parents would think. Yeah, I would imagine. And then she, yeah, I don't have contact with her now, but, you know, she, she knows. <laughs> Everyone knows. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When uh, when did you join? And, and I guess what was the catalyst? Because it's really easy to identify. I say easy, relatively. I, it's easy to identify yourself as a Satanist once you've read the Satanic Bible and to live your life knowing mm-hmm. that and acknowledging that within yourself. But to actually join the Church of Satan, I think it's always interesting to hear other people's reasons for it. Because, you know, we're very proud as being non-joiners. And so, what was it about Mm -hmm. the organization or uh, the the philosophy, the way of life, that drew you to the organization? Well, like I said, I've been a member for years now. I I don't even know the exact year I joined. It's been so long. But um, what, what actually drew me to the organization was that it was the first thing that I actually related to. You know, um, from, it was something that was consistent in my life from a very young age into adulthood, which most, you know, kids going through teenage years and all that, you know, they go through different things, like different kinds of music. That was always a a constant thing for me because that's who I am, you know, and I've always had, um, I don't know how I would describe it, but I've always known that, been comfortable with that, and been proud of that. So, you know, as I um, read more books and <laughs> um, learned more about the organization, I wanted to join more, even though, I, like you said, we're not joiners, and we usually don't join um, groups or whatever have you. I agreed with the philosophy, and I felt that I was already living as a Satanist before I even, you know, my whole life. I mean, that was just who I was, and, you know, why not uh, seal the deals, you know? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So speak, but, yeah. So do you think that the Church of Satan has empowered you as a woman? I think the Church of Satan has, I think, it, I, yeah, I mean, I could say it empowered me, uh, it empowers me as a woman, but I think more than anything, you know, I would be empowered regardless, because this is, you know, who I am, you know? Mm. I mean, I've always, I've always just been a very strong, you know, personality and always been, you know, very outspoken and outgoing and, you know, so, yes, I do, you know, but I mean, I help it, you know? Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> I always yeah. Don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that, that actually speaks to, you know, another point that's kind of unrelated to this, but, you know, it's that idea of what people expect to come out of joining the Church of Satan. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like you just said, this is who you are no matter what. So because you joined the Church of Satan, you weren't magically empowered with anything. You know, that that's always been within you. Right. Uh, the philosophy may have been a catalyst to that understanding, but y- you're you, you know. The, mm-hmm. the Church didn't mold that into you. Um, 
So, and it's always interesting because you hear that, I hear that a lot in a lot of social circles about, you know, well, you don't get anything out of it or this is what I want to get out of it or, well, how about you just be who you are and, and, and that is the empowerment. That is what is important about it. So that's, um, that's fascinating. What do you see in your future? Uh, where do you want to be? I look forward to being a grandma and I look forward to, hopefully, I really, really want to do more acting. I really, you know... It's just, you know, I'm like a character type. I don't really, you know, I don't really blend in, you know. Um, I have tattoos and, you know, I have blonde hair and I look a little different. So, yeah. you know, um, it's kind of hard. But, you know, um, I just saw a movie that I, I was an extra for, an independent film recently. And it was fantastic. And I was so excited. And I was just like, I want to keep doing this, you know? And, like, doing the shows, the TLC show was a great experience. Um, Oddies, everything I've done, you know, the Fuse show. And I really want to... That's really been this year. The videos, Darren's video, I did a few music videos. Like, and that's really been this year, more than taking pictures. So, I really enjoy it. I mean, I have no problem sitting around in a corset for 10 hours, standing up, you know, just to get, right. like, a a good, you know, scene. I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> Oh. You know, but um, we'll see. I, you know, I never, I never expect much, but you know, but I, I like to just kind of, you know, ride the wave and see where it takes. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm happy. I mean, if I die tomorrow, I'd be happy with everything I've done. <laughs> right. You certainly should be. Um, you, you've uh, got some nice notches on your belt, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, do you have any advice for other women out there uh, who would like to follow in uh, similar footsteps as yours? Well, what I would say is don't let anyone or anything hold you back from what you want to do. Even if it's, you know, I don't know, you know, writing a book or, or you know, starting a hobby. I mean, I did my first photo shoot when I was like 12. And, um, you know, they wanted me to fix my teeth and everything. And because uh, I have spaces in my teeth, uh, some modeling agency. And I didn't do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel mom, and, you know, I mean, I did things here and there, but, you know, just don't let anyone stop you. You know, just, and be fearless. Yeah. Don't worry about what everyone's going to think. Because <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Marilyn Mansfield, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining you me. You too. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, and you know what? When you develop those dolls, I would love to... Uh, see them and if I could talk to you about them and we could maybe help uh, get the word out about them um, I, I would be... I'll show you the, the one I made for my uh, my mother yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you could see her she's kind of uh... oh my gosh <laughs> whoa I don't know, it's not well but she has like black eyes and yeah like the, like the fingernails everything the skin is hand painted and all this is my first one that's, that's so. amazing and it's Kind of scary, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. Everyone's like, that's scary. <laughs> but cute, so. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And, uh, thank you. I wish the best of luck for you in, in everything that you do. Uh, you're, you're a real, real uh, just treasure for the community, I think. <laughs> a lot of fun. Oh, um, and then, until we can talk again, the hell Satan. Yes, you too. Hell Satan. <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bazaar of the Bazaar. 
Maybe it's just me. And I completely admit that this might be a callback to my youth of staying home, just ditching school, you know, saying that I was sick so I could hang out at home and uh, <laughs> take advantage of talk show hosts or uh, the Sears catalog lingerie section <laughs> as a young man. <laughs> but nowadays, when uh, when I think of some of my most excited times, it's always when I'm sick. And it's weird, like, I mean, I'll have moments of passion, you know, without being sick at all, or just being, you know, blatantly horny, uh, without, you know, being in, in completely good health. But it seems like that's amplified <laughs> whenever I have a cold or a flu, or whenever I'm sort of confined to the bed or the couch or something. Like, if there's nothing to do, all I can think about doing <laughs> is something that no one wants to do with me. <laughs> Because of the state I'm in. So I'll be like watching TV. And I don't know about anyone else out there. But it is genuinely difficult to look at Sally Jesse Raphael <laughs> with any sense of excitement. Or or uh, or Ellen DeGeneres for the modern talk show crowd or something. It's, it's genuinely difficult. So when I see other people that are sick. I always like to imagine, I wonder if they are just randy right now, <laughs> if they're just flush and ready to go. If only someone would just get past the snotty, runny nose and the phlegm shooting cough and the sweaty, clammy skin. <laughs> I bet they would be completely into it. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> and I... I fully accept that that's a possibility. So next time you're sick, I don't want you to think about me. But just think, huh, there's nothing else I could be doing right now, and I've already slept 16 straight hours. Maybe suddenly that uh, National Geographic on your nightstand featuring the bare-breasted aboriginal natives uh, isn't so much of an obscurity anymore. <laughs> Maybe maybe you'll just take whatever you can as fuel and you will light that fire because genuinely everyone is hornier when they're sick. <laughs> and that's it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. <laughs> I'm still thinking, why did I say Sally Jesse Raphael? That's so gross. That's like, it's like looking at Macaulay Culkin with earrings. <laughs> like, there's nothing attractive about that at all. Worst. <laughs> Alright. Uh, you can, let me finish this. <laughs> You can visit the Undercroft Facebook, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. And on the off chance that you're actually on Google+, you can uh, look for updates there, too. <laughs> uh, you can listen to the show through Radio Free Satan. Or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com or subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents. Don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more, about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. If you'd like to meet other Satanists, 
visit Undercroft at Satannet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan.